I'd invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. We'll look at the middle section of this chapter. Genesis chapter 24. But I want to just open with a word of prayer. Genesis chapter 24 will be starting in verse 15. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, today again for the privilege of worshiping you. It is our joy. Uh, Father, as we open your word, uh, I pray that it would uh, go forth and work in our hearts as you see fit. Lord, help us to uh, apply the things that we hear and um, the things that we know. And may we, through this, bring honor and glory to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at servitude uh, in this chapter. And we know that in the world, uh, in Scripture times, in this time, time of the Old Testament, it was a much different world, even in the time of the New Testament. Much different world, particularly concerning this idea in this time of slavery. It was a, a brutal world, brutal time back then. And um, it, it, was, it was used, this uh, man-made construct of slavery was used. It was just accepted. It was not only accepted, but it was a, a natural thing to, for Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. When you think about that, that is just a terrible thing, especially from our standpoint today. But for money, they sold him into slavery. Slavery is a, a terrible man-made construct. We would kind of equate it somewhat with our employment today, but... Obviously, it's much more degrading than that. But it was uh, one of those things that someone could uh, even willfully uh, in servitude themselves uh, to a, a master that they may love uh, to just protect them for providing for them. And many times it was a good life. Sometimes the servants were, were hired. They were paid on a daily basis. Uh, for maybe even a lifetime of service or for a service of a period of time, they would receive a pay. Uh, but many times, of course, they were sold into slavery. They would be purchased on a, a slave mar- at the slave market. You can go down to uh, Charleston, South Carolina today, and they, they still have that as a uh, uh, historic mark there as a, really a blight on America that uh, we had slavery at that time, at, at one point in our uh, country's history. Um, sometimes uh, they, people became slaves as a spoils of war. Uh, as one nation would conquer another nation, they would have that right to, in, uh, to enslave the, the people. They would be able to kidnap people and in, in servitude them. Um, Sometimes uh, if there was a, a thief and he was not able to repay, uh, he would be sold into slavery. If you had debt and could not pay your debt, sometimes you would be sold into slavery. That was the way things were. Now, that's, that's foreign to us today. We don't even think about that kind of, of uh, brutality today. But that's the, that's the world 
apart, I think, apart from the, the Christian influence. In Abraham's day, there was a, a godly influence, but it was only from within the family. There was no nation that served God. That didn't come along until God established the nation of Israel. It was just within family groups, and there was very, very few influences then. And um, slavery ran rampant because the sinful nature of man. That's what man does. Now, within Scripture then, Moses comes along and uh, gives uh, some laws, strict laws actually, concerning slavery and servanthood. It was forbidden that uh, a slave master would treat uh, a slave harshly. They were not allowed to do that. If they were, the the slave was able to uh, protest and, and get find the protection of of someone else, and they were they were to stand up for that slave if he was abused. If he was injured um, or maimed in some way by the master, he was to be set free. Every six years, at the end of every sixth year, he was supposed to. This slaves were set free anyway in Israel. They were able to uh, to uh, celebrate the day of rest on the Sabbath day, the last day of the week. Their kin, the closest kin folk that they would have, were able to redeem them if they were sold into slavery. And that was uh, part of that. Uh, uh, those laws from Moses, from the Mosaic Law. Also, if there was a national celebration, they were allowed to be a part of that. You were not to covet another person's slave. And you were not allowed to entice them away. And sometimes slave would, slaves would rise to a, a pretty high position. And at the end of their servanthood, or servant. To, they were allowed to. Uh, they were. They were supposed to be well cared for, uh, furnished all that they would need generously. Um, but it was still a very humbling position to be a servant, to be a, a slave, uh, to to have your will uh, as uh, submitting to someone else's will, uh, and it was. An ungodly environment. It was a brutal environment, probably very crass and forceful. When you're imposing your will on someone else's, that's what that's what happened. And that's not the kind of environment that we see in Christianity. And I think Christianity was a big part of abolishing slavery first in Great Britain and then here in America as well. I think it was the influence of Christianity. But there's good reason for God to call His people servant. In fact, when you look at the, the term more closely, we are purchased. Just like we would have been on the, the slave block, we were purchased. We are not just servants, we are slaves. And that's the term that's used throughout the New Testament, doulos. It's, a, it's a slave. It's not because God doesn't call his people servants or slaves just because he's a mean and nasty tyrant. No, he is a good God. It's just the reality. Our servitude to God is a reality. 
He created us, so He owns us in that way. He redeemed us, so He owns us as slaves in that way. Christ is King, and everyone will submit to Christ at some point. And then Christ, uh, and then as Christians, we voluntarily submit ourselves to His kingship. So we are servants of the Most High God. If you are a Christian, you are a servant of God. And we are to live from that perspective. In fact, I believe that that's one of the reasons that God uses that term to help us understand, help us to, to, to grasp our obligation to God. Because we're, we're servants. We're, we're slaves to God. And that's the terminology that you see really throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, we, we need to understand that role and live from that perspective. Now, as servants of God, we seek to be good servants of God. We want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And what is a, a good servant? What shapes our understanding of a good servant? Especially in our day when we really don't have uh, slaves and servitude today. What's going to shape our understanding and define that for us? Well, we look to Scripture. And I think what you see in this passage, and Abraham's servant is the quintessential good servant. This is the embodiment of what it is to be a good servant. We've been looking at his example here, and I think there's many things that we can learn from this passage. It may take us a while to get through this passage, but I think there's a lot to be learned. We have to remember, though, that we have to be objective. We, we can't just impose our ideas on this Example here, our judgment is often flawed. So our principles that we gain from, uh, that we uh, start with, has to start with within Scripture. And then we evaluate, this is a good servant because he's fulfilling these biblical principles. And we see throughout Scripture, biblical principles of what it is to be a good servant. And so we compare our servanthood or servitude to God with this man's servitude to Abraham. So what is the characteristics of a good servant? We've been looking at these things. First of all, and we've looked at five of them so far, a good servant realizes he is under obligation. He knows at some point he's going to give an account to that master. Number two, a good servant is one who is the master, or one who the master can trust with great responsibility. He was trustworthy servant. Number three, a good servant focuses upon the master's desires, not just the master's commands. Like we saw earlier, you see the command, don't kill, but there's a whole lot more implied in that. And so the desire of the good servant is to please the master, not just, not just, uh, not just uh, focus on just the command, but the pleasing of the master, not just duty. His goal is not just duty, but to please the master. Number four, a servant is, uses his master's resources wisely, caring for the master's plan, carrying out the master's plan. He's a good steward. He's not just consuming things on himself. He is, uh, he is using these, his resources that the master gives him upon, uh, for the master's duty, complete the master's goal and will. Number five, a good servant depends upon God. A good servant depends upon God. 
Um, he knows what pleases his master, and he depends upon God to fulfill that. Now, this is where we left off last week in, uh, in our story that this Abraham's servant was in task of finding a wife for Abraham's uh, son, Isaac. And he was to find this wife from Abraham's relatives, which is 450 to 500 miles away. So he makes this long journey. He, we see him then outside the city at the city well. And he's waiting for the young ladies to come out of the city. And he begins to pray to the Lord. And he prays to the Lord for success, for help. Help me to find the right bride. And he, he's, you see his dependence upon the Lord in this. And, and we see him praying. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 15. And I want you to see this, that a good servant, number six, a good servant waits patiently for the sovereign hand of the Lord to work. He prays for the Lord's help. And then now he's, he's waiting. Look at this in verse 15. And before he had finished speaking, before he had finished praying, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, was coming out with her jar on her shoulder. That would have been the case in the cool of the evening. The younger ladies of the, the city would have come out. They would have had a central well. They probably, it was a very social activity. They may have come out as a group together. And uh, this servant sees this lady. Verse 16. Now the young woman was very beautiful in appearance, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished, when he, she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they had finished drinking. Now remember, that was the test, right? He had, one of the things that he had prayed for back in verse 14 was that when he says, will you give me a drink? She will add to that and say, yes, I'll give you a drink and I'll also water your camels. So keep that in mind. That's part of the answer to his prayer. Verse 19. Now, when she had finished drinking, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they had finished drinking. Now you have to remember, he had ten camels. And each camel could drink 25 gallon, And that was a lot of water. And so she hurried and emptied her jar into the water channel. Where all the camels would have been lined up and able to drink. And she ran again to the well to draw. And she draw, drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, and I think this is the key, the man was... Gazing at her in silence to know whether Yahweh had made his journey successful or not. Now, let's just stop right there. There, I think you see the principle. He's he's waiting. Now, now there's good indication. There's a good sign here. It it seems to be possible that this could be the the young lady right away. And it's in fact, it says uh, before he had finished praying. So she actually started from her house coming outside the city, uh, probably even before he was praying. And God was already answering his prayer. She had already started walking and, and the Lord is 
answering the prayer. And this is, this is the sign that he was wanting, right? That this young lady would come out. But he doesn't jump to conclusions here. Now, it would be easy to, but he doesn't jump. He, he waits. He waits and, and watches her. Verse 21, meanwhile, he is gazing at her in silence, just, just watching and he's thinking to himself whether or not the, Yahweh has already given him success in this journey. This is, this is too easy. This is so good, he's thinking. Is this from the Lord? Is this, a, is this the sign? Is this what uh, uh, I'm supposed to see here? Is this the one from the, from the Lord? So he, he prayed. The Lord had given guidance. The Lord had directed his steps. And it looks promising. But he's careful. He doesn't just jump in. He's waiting patiently. There's one key factor here. And that she has to be from the right family. Was she from the right family? And he's getting ready to ask that question. But just notice that he's patient. He's patiently waiting. He doesn't just jump in uh, at at the first sign. Now, I just want to make a little application here. Because we are so prone... To look for signs from God. Oh Lord, guide me in this way. Guide me in that way. And I'm, and here's the sign. We kind of test the Lord. And, and we just kind of jump on that. I've heard churches that will uh, that kind of do their church budget beyond what they can really afford. And they'll stretch that. And, and uh, one person will say, you know, the Lord gave me a sign. Or the Lord told me that, that this should be the budget. And so they, they jump into that only to have to correct the budget. In the in halfway through the year, and it is not the Lord's will, but but they jump on these little signs. So often we we do that. I was talking with a friend last week. <clears throat> he had he had three children, three girls, and now the third one, he wanted to be a boy. In fact, when he, they found out that his wife was pregnant, he thought, "Oh, the Lord's answered my prayer. The Lord's given me a boy," and. Um, and he already named this boy. And he had, it, it played with this boy in his mind. You know, you, you just kind of elevate your, this, this uh, whole thing. And, and, uh, and he just knew the Lord was going to answer his prayer. In fact, he ran into a friend. And the friend says, yeah, you know, I, uh, I think the Lord told me, and he uses those terms, the Lord told me that you're going to have a boy. And you're going to name him this. And he said, wow, that's the name that I'd chosen too. This is just of the Lord. And I had to remind him it was wrong, right? Because he wound up having a girl. That wasn't from the Lord. So, so he's confused in his mind because he's looking for a sign. Now, we, we're like that. We're kind of mystical like that, aren't we? And we have to be very, very careful. This man, he sees signs, but, but he's, he's cautious. Now, today we have the completed Word of God. We don't, we don't need to depend upon signs in fact, the Lord has given us, we, we know that He is a, a gracious God and His sovereign hand works. And so we are just to be patient upon Him. In fact, we, we see one of the fruits of the Spirit is to work in our life, patience. In Ephesians chapter 5, though, I want to remind you of this principle. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse, uh, verse 15, we see um, that Paul tells the church at Ephesus, that um, 
It says this, therefore, look carefully how you walk, how you live your life. That's that's more to do with the will of God than you might think. How you live, how you live your life. Not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming of time, because the days are evil. On account of the account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Look, the, the Lord's going to direct our path. We understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? Well, in chapter four, uh, chapter four, he explains that. And he, here's some of the things. And in fact, we find these principles throughout Scripture. In chapter four, verse twenty-five, therefore, lay aside falsehood. Speak truth to one another. Don't don't lie. That's the will of the Lord for your life. Don't lie. Twenty-six. Be angry and do not sin. Don't don't sin with your anger. Verse twenty-eight. Do not steal. Verse twenty-nine. Do not let any unwholesome words proceed out of your mouth. That's God's will for your life. Verse thirty-one. Let no bitterness or anger or wrath coming out of our mouth. Those kinds of attitudes. That's the way the Lord works in our life. That's the will of God. We walk carefully and wisely about the way we conduct ourselves and then allow the Lord to just lead us. We don't have to have signs today. We have wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? It's taking the Word of God and applying it to the circumstances of our life appropriately. Properly bringing those two things together. That's the way we live our life. And this man was doing that very thing. He saw the signs. He, he, he thought, is this from God? Well, it sure looks like it's from God. But he was cautious. He was cautious because he had to know, is this the, the right family? So let's go back and look at our passage. We see a, another principle. The, the Servant of God uses uh, wise discernment and waiting for the Lord. He's applying the, the wisdom from God with the circumstances of life, pulling these things together. Is this the Lord's will? And he can rest in with confidence with these things. And then point number seven, a good servant is thankful when he sees God's hand. Now notice this. This is, is wonderful. Verse 22, he says, Now it happened, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two gold bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there a place for us to lodge in your father's house? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whose, whom she bore to Nahor. And she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and a place to lodge. Then the man, then the man bowed low and worshipped Yahweh. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, Yahweh has guided me in the way to the house of my brothers, or my master's brother. 
He had to ask the question, right? He had to make sure that this was the right family, and that's exactly what he does. And then what's his response? He sees the sign. He sees God's hand at work. Yes, this this could possibly be it. And then he asks the question, is this the right family? And, and sure enough, yes. Bethuel, Milcah, and then brothers uh, Abraham's brother Nahor. It's his descendants. So, so he knows. Yes, the Lord has guided me. He has all the information now. He knows that the Lord has worked. And what does he do? He, he worships. It's just a natural response for the, for the believer, for God's children. When we see the, the Lord's hand, when we see Him working, when we see, yes, He has answered this prayer, it's the, the reaction for the believer is just, oh Lord, thank you. And he praised the Lord. He bowed his hand and worshipped Yahweh. What a wonderful thing. He says, blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham. has not forsaken Abraham, the loving kindness and truth to Abraham, but, but also has guided me, guided me in the way of my master's brother, also my master's brother. That's, that's just a wonderful example for us. God's servants, folks, will always, always, always have something to worship. Always, always, always have something to worship about. Believers see the hand of God. Now, let's just think about this. Because somebody could look at this and say, oh, well, this is just, uh, this is kind of just second hand uh, that, that God was uh, doing these things second hand. It really wasn't from God. It's just happenstance. And we have a, a lot of scientists today, oh, you know, you Christians think every, God is in everything, but we know the science and it's not really God, it's, it's the science. And, and people would look at this and say, well, that's just happenstance. They're at the right time, at the right place. Rebecca just went out because that's what she does the same time every every day. And just kind of explain this away as just a coincidence. We could say that. We can say that. But this servant understood that it was God that it was, was at work here. That God was doing this. This wasn't, this wasn't just happenstance. Is, does God use secondary causes Yes, the need for water in this household, the, the young woman to go out and get it. Yes, those are all natural causes. The Lord uses that, but it's still still of the Lord, of the Lord. I'm just reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, the natural man does not accept the, the depths of the Spirit of God, the natural man, the unsaved person. They're going to explain things from a naturalistic standpoint. They're not going to see God's hand at work in this. The natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Ah, foolish. God working? No, that wasn't God. You You just got lucky, buddy. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined or spiritually appraised. We have, as believers, we have the ability to see God's hand in all of the circumstances of life. Not just the the physical elements, but we see God's hand at work there. And he goes on to say, but he who is spiritual examines all things. This is the way we see life. Now, does God use the secondary causes? Yes. 
But we recognize that's God's hand. We recognize that that's from God. Now, when we don't recognize that, then we fail to give God praise and God glory. But He recognized that. And when we recognize those things, what do we do? It's the, the reaction of the believer's heart is just to respond in praise. Reaction of our heart to, to be thankful. Lord, thank You for these things. I praise You for these things. And so often, folks, we live in the natural. So often we forget to, that, that God is at work. Um, we get up and, and go to work every day. We think, well, that's just my job. You know what? God gave you that job. God gave you that body to be able to get up and and to function and to do the things that that you do. God has given you that strength, that, that health, that focus of mind. The Lord has given those things. He gets the glory for that. And it should be the reaction of every believer. Probably every morning that we wake up. Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, I praise you. Lord, you have answered prayers today. In fact, everything that we look at, we can appraise from a spiritual standpoint and say, you know what? God is at work. We see God's hand everywhere. When we know where to look, there's a danger here just to look at the secondary causes. It'd be like going to Walmart and just thinking, well, that food just came from Walmart, right? Well, no. To get to Walmart... Some man had to grow that food. Some farmer had to get out of bed, plant that food. There's a whole lot going on there. And, and you know what? For God to, to fulfill this man's prayers, it really was an amazing thing. In fact, I say it's a humbling thing. When you think about that, that the, the God of the universe that w- would, even, would even recognize us, let alone answer our prayers, he feeds us every day, but yet to answer our prayers specifically, we, He answers our prayers and then sometimes we, we forget to thank Him for that. We forget to worship. You know, as we go through the week, we should be adding those things up. And when we come to worship and praise the Lord, man, our praise is just fueled by what God has done for us throughout the week. We should come to church full And ready to sing His praises because of His goodness. Because we see His hand at work in our life. So a a good servant is is thankful. Thankful. And then number eight, a good servant has a singleness of purpose. A good servant has singleness of purpose. Look back at our passage, verse 28. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. Now, it happened that when he saw the ring and the bracelet on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, this is what the man said, he came out to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, blessed of Yahweh. I love that phrase. Laban recognized this is, this is a servant of Yahweh. This is a man who is blessed by Yahweh. You know, we, we kind of take that for granted today because we have such an a, a influence of Christianity. But, and these are, these are believers that, that it is probably precious to them to find another believer. Blessed of Yahweh. Why do you stand outside and, since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? 
So the man came into the house. Then Laban unloaded the camels, and he gave straw and feed to the camels and water for his feet and for the feet of the men who, was, who were with him. Having gone on a long journey, they were, they were ready to just be fresh and were washing their feet just uh, in the cool, just a wonderful time of reunion. And we see them being uh, hosted by Laban and his family. And then, verse 33, then food was set before him to eat. But he said, he's got to be hungry, right? Long trip. He said, I will not eat until I've spoken my words. And he said, it's Laban said, speak. This guy had singleness of purpose. You you can tell. He didn't come to eat. (laughs) He didn't come to socialize. He came to do one thing. His master's will. I've got to get this out of the way so that I can can just rest now. Because I'm doing my master's bidding here. I'm sure he was hungry. And it kind of reminds you, kind of reminds you or me of, of Christ. Uh, he was in John chapter 4. He was talking to the woman at the well. And the disciples had gone off into the city to find something to eat. He was there. He was talking to this woman. And she believes in him. It was an amazing story. And she goes running off to the people of the city and she tells the people of the city about Christ. And Christ sees the people of the city coming out. But he, the, the disciples come. And in verse 31 it says, Meanwhile the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. There's a there's a sustaining nourishment of the soul. He had done God's bidding here with this woman, and and it was just refreshing to to Christ. And he says, you know what, guys, I don't need to eat. My focus is on this evangelistic opportunity. And he sees the people coming out of the city, bring being led by this this woman. It was a wonderful thing, and he was just there's an exhilaration here. And so at verse 33, the disciples were saying to, to each, to everyone, has anybody brought any food to him? And he said to him, my food is to do what? The will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's a servant. That's the focus of a servant. That's the focus of a good servant right there. That's the same kind of attitude that you have right here with this man. Just focused. In fact, there's probably a certain amount of, of energy that he senses here. That, that the Lord has blessed and he sees the hand of God at work and, and he's just got to say it here. This is what the Lord has, has done. This is what the Lord is, is doing. And Christ was the same way. He, he was energized here. W- was he hungry? Yeah, there was, a, there was a, a natural hunger there. But boy, the spiritual sacrifice just took precedent. That, that hunger becomes secondary. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or 15, verse 58. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. We're to focus. We're to focus our life. There's a certain nourishment for our souls when we're doing the Lord's work. We, we just kind of forget ourselves. 
lose ourselves in the service of the Lord. And there's a, a just a, a, a wonderful joy and exhilaration with that. And I, I just you know last week with the car show, it was a joy to work together as a church, just kind of doing what we do. There's an exhilaration. Now, at the end of the day, you're exhausted. But you know what? It's fun. It's fun to serve the Lord and serve with each other. Sacrificing. Putting God first. Seeking His kingdom first. And His priorities first. A singleness of purpose. But you'd never know that unless you get in and serve. Because we can always think of, of all kinds of little things, of reasons why we can't serve in the physical realm. But I tell you, when you begin to serve the Lord, all of those things just kind of fall away. And that's, that's just what we see. And that singleness of purpose, there's no distractions. No distractions of the stuff of the world. There's an exhilaration when it comes to serving the Lord. Now, those are three things. A good servant is patient, waiting on the Lord to work. When he sees the Lord working, he recognizes that, falls down and worships the Lord. He's willing to sacrifice. You know, I can wait to eat. I've got to tell you what the Lord is doing here. That's an example of a good servant. This is the epitome of what it is to be a good servant. We must have the right perspective. That that's the right perspective. So focused. And folks, we are servants of the Most High God. Now, let me give you a couple of just dangers just by way of application. There's a couple of dangers here that, that we fall into, some traps that we may fall into. First is grace. If you can imagine that. In an environment of grace, God has been gracious to His people. He calls us friends. He's adopted us into His family. We have this environment of grace even within the church that we live in. And we become spoiled. And we don't see ourselves as servants. Oh no, I'm a, man, I'm a child of God. I like that term much better than servant of God. And we, for, we kind of forget. But you know what? That changes our perspective. We need to see ourselves as the Word of God sees us. And, and labels us as servants of God. Why is that so important? In Romans chapter 6, he explains this to us. And, and I, I want you to see Paul's logic here. In Romans chapter 6, and verse 15, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we are no longer under the law, but under grace? We, we now live in this environment of, of grace. Shall we just continue on sinning and, and just enjoy this environment? He says, may it never be the strongest negative in the Greek language. No, no, no. Do you not know? Now, now, watch what he says here. Do you not know that the one who goes on presenting presenting yourself to someone as slaves, and notice the terminology for obedience, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey. You, you, You obey that sin, you're slave to sin. You're still a slave to sin. Either a slave... Uh, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thanks be to God that through that though you were slaves to sin, so we were slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching which you have uh, you've been, were given over and have been freed from sin and no longer slaves to sin become slaves of righteousness 
Did you see that? In that environment of of grace, it's easy for us to, to forget that we're slaves. And Paul goes right to that. No, you were slaves of sin. Now you're slaves to what? To righteousness. Slaves to righteousness. We can't just do whatever we want to do. We're, we're slaves of righteousness. You need to see yourself as slaves to righteousness. Slaves to God. And every Christian is, should strive to be a, a good servant of God. But here's what I see. I see sometime today, I, I, you see Christians and just carefree. They're not slaves of God. They, they haven't placed themselves under the servitude of God. They're under no obligation. And there's some people that, that claim the name of Christ, but, but there's no reality there. They're not serving God at all. Christ, uh, Christ turned to a, a group of people like that in Luke chapter 6. And he says, verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Oh, oh, you like being part of this group and, and there's some energy there. There's some excitement there. You like the speaking. You like to hear me speak. There's no... You're not doing what I say. You're not my servant. You, you call me Lord, but you're not serving me. Folks, that's a danger. We, we have this environment of grace, but we fail to see ourselves as servants. And we must learn... We must not let that environment of grace cause us to forget that we are slaves of sin. One more place that we need to apply this thing. And this is, this is abandon, uh, abandoning our service. Because in the real world, slavery, back in the day, they had to use ball and chains to keep those slaves on task. They had to use brute force and, and beat those slaves into submission. Um. Now, we serve an invisible God. What keeps us in place? What keeps us from from running away? What what holds us to our our servitude to God? What keeps us from running? Why do we surrender ourselves to His kingship? To the King of Heaven? Let me give you four quick reasons, real quick. Number one, is just appreciation. Paul says, your love compels me. It constrains me. It controls me. I can't go anywhere because my love for you, I, you, I love you. And, I, and I, I cannot leave because of that. It, it holds me. It, it keeps me in control of my words and my attitude in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Number two, Christ said this. He says, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. What holds us? What's part of that chain? Another link in the chain is appreciation. And then just a hunger for righteousness. We kind of lose our taste for, for sinfulness. We, we, we thrive on righteousness. And Christ said, Christ said that. He said that those who have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're going to be satisfied. Peter said another one, number three, Peter said, he said to Christ, he says, where do we go? You have the words of eternal life. I can't abandon you because your life, your life-giving word sustains my very soul. Where else are we going to go for life? We would starve to death. And then number four is just the Lord's hand keeps us. Those are internal things. Those are things of the heart. 
that the, the Lord holds us into place. We, we appreciate the Lord. He has changed our heart. We love Him. He's given us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's why Paul can say we're now slaves to righteousness. And Peter says we can't abandon, we can't go anyplace else. Why? We're tied to Your Word. And the Lord's hand keeps us in Ephesians chapter 1. We see that. So our our servitude to God is is slavery of righteousness, slavery to the Word, slavery to His grace. And that's the chains that hold us. That's what holds us into place. And again, unfortunately, we have a Christianity today. You don't see this. You don't see any kind of internal change. You don't, you don't see any, anything that holds them, any desire there to please the Master. Nothing there that uh, would, would indicate enslavement to, to Christ. There's been no change in their heart. Still spiritually dead really not not to, not spiritually alive at all no desire for god's word no desire for god's work oh they may do some things there's going to be people at the end say lord lord we did this in your name we did that in your name if they did it it was out of duty not love they, they liked the environment they just wanted to be a part it's all exciting there has to be a heart change And that heart change is what keeps us, that links us to God. We can't abandon our post. We we can't go anywhere. We're slaves. We are tied to God's Word. We're tied to righteousness. We're tied to just our love for the Lord. And as servants, folks, that's the best term that God could use to describe the reality of being a Christian. And that's being a slave of the Most High God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that that term of servanthood, of, of being a slave, just defines who we are. Help us to see our life our, from that perspective, that we are just here to do Your bidding. Not my will be done, but Your will be done. Lord, help us to have that focus, that kind of perspective, And Lord, I pray that we please you. Lord, make us good servants. And we thank you for the privilege of serving you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.